Okay, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. Can't see the little word in the corner. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are, but you, who are you to judge your neighbour? Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, why do you not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of, your, because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself, yourselves in the days of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Thanks be to God for the reading. And if Margaret would like to come up now and bring the word to us today, and I'll pray for you now, Margaret. Heavenly Father, I pray you'd be with Margaret at this time. She's uh, a little bit nervous, she said before the service, as I was. I just pray your blessing on her, that you would bring the right words to be delivered today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, that's fine. Thank you very much. Yes, I did say to Andy I was a little bit nervous this morning. <laughs> Thank you. A sweetie. <laughs> oh dear, good morning. Anyway, can you hear me all right? Is this, yeah, lovely, good. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Margaret, uh, and I'm filling in this morning for Pastor Chris, uh, who's been away this week on half term. This is not an easy passage this morning, <laughs> as Chris has kept telling us about the whole letter of James. Uh, also, you might have noticed in that reading, there's three sections to it. So we've got three sermons this morning. I hope you're sitting comfortably, okay? <laughs> I would also echo the same thing that Chris said uh, a couple of weeks ago. This teaching is to me as much as to anyone else. Please don't feel that I'm getting at anyone this morning. Uh, just remember that anyone who points a finger has got three fingers pointing back at themselves. So please don't feel that I'm getting at you. I'm just saying what James says, okay? 
James is not teaching new theology here, as we've already been told. He's reminding Christian believers of how we should live the Christian life. And we all need to hear this if we are to live Christ-like lives. But the truth is that the whole of James's letter is underlined with and based on love and humility. I'm really thankful to Andy for his music choice this morning because that message of love has been coming through again and again. And we will see it this morning as we delve into this passage. So, first section. Yet again, this bit is all about speech and our words. We've already heard about being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, as Kim has reminded us in her prayers. We've heard Chris's powerful sermon on taming the tongue and the devastating damage our words can cause. Today, we're moving on to a very specific aspect of speech. But first, I'd like to bring all of this teaching about speech and our words together in a little story that I hope will paint a picture that will stick in your minds as much as it's stuck in my mind and will remind us why James puts such an emphasis on it. Could we have the photo up on the screen, please? Now, a few weeks ago, Chris showed us a photo of his nan. This is my grandparents, Eini and Millward, very old-fashioned names, but they were lovely, lovely grandparents. They lived in a bungalow not very far away from us, and as children, we went there a lot. Granny, in particular, loved to have us there at the bungalow. It's just that on this particular day, I think she would have preferred it if we'd have stayed at home. <laughs> My sister Jen and I were about four, five years old, something like that. And we were playing quite happily in the bedroom without some toys. I think we were putting our dolls to bed or something, uh, keeping out of the way of the adults. Granny came in and she said in her lovely broad Cornish accent, now you girls, you're all right in here, playing in here. I don't mind you being in here, but whatever you do, just don't he touch that bottom drawer of the dressing table. Do you hear me? You can play with anything else, but do not touch that drawer. Genesis chapter three all over again, isn't it? <laughs> Nothing's changed. Of course we opened the drawer to see what was in it and what was so special. We struggled because the drawer was heavy and we were very little. But suddenly it just fell open. Now bear in mind that this was round about 1951, 1950, 51, something like that. Not that long after the war. Yes, I am that old, get over it. <laughs> it was the era of make do and mend, make your own, repair it. Well, we didn't know, but Granny was remaking all her pillows and refilling them, and that drawer was stuffed full of loose feathers. <laughs> you know, the little, the little downy ones that float up in the air. And of course, as soon as the drawer fell open and wedged so that it couldn't shut, be sure your sins will find you out. <laughs> the feathers all started to tumble out and rise up in the air and, oh dear, we'd better put them back. 
Have you ever tried catching feathers? <laughs> it is not possible. And the more we tried to push the feathers back down in the drawer, the more they came out. Oh dear. And they were sticking to our hot little hands and getting up, th 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 getting in our mouths. And well, mum heard the commotion and she came along to see what was happening and she flung the bedroom door open which of course I had shut first, of course I did. She flung it open so a nice draught of air through the room. <laughs> we got us a blizzard. <laughs> oh dear, how Granny ever resolved all those feathers, I will never know, because we were banned from the garden at the bedroom. <laughs> uh, and we were in no doubt that we'd been naughty. Our words are just like those feathers. Once they're out of your mouth, you can't put them back. And the more you try to backtrack, the worse it gets, and the feathers get in your mouth and choke you. Ask any politician whose evil, unkind words have gone viral in a matter of minutes in our digital age. I didn't say that. I didn't mean it like that. You've taken it out of context. Too late. The words are out there, they've been heard, and people have made up their own minds, and the damage is done. So James says here in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, do not slander one another, or in other versions, do not judge, do not speak evil of one another. This is about gossip and backbiting, talking behind people's backs, and once it's out there, you can't take it back. It gets heard and repeated and repeated and embellished along the way and you can never retrieve all the feathers. It causes so much damage and hurt. And anyone who's been on the receiving end of it knows how uncomfortable a place that can be. But, and I'm very grateful here for the explanation of this passage from Tom Wright, James goes on to say that anyone who behaves in this manner is judging the law. Now, to put Tom's explanation in my own words, it's as if I'm saying, this is the law, this is what's right, I know what's right, and that person is not doing it right. They're doing it wrong. I'm speaking as if I've made the law. I'm laying the law down, if you like. I am above the law myself. It doesn't apply to me, because I'm judging the other person without realizing that I am breaking God's most important, holy, royal law to love one another. This is not only foolish and arrogant, says Tom, but we are in danger of usurping the very role of God himself. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. In other words, only God is qualified to judge, to pass the kind of judgment that a Christian is making when he or she speaks evil of another Christian. Often without knowing all the facts, sometimes with absolutely no idea of the truth for the person who's being judged. There is an old saying which says, don't judge another person until you've walked a mile in their shoes. 
To know all is to forgive all. And to know all, you probably wouldn't judge them anyway. Only God knows all the truth in any given situation. And only God is qualified to judge. How dare we put ourselves in the place of God? Our command is to love one another. And as it says, Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 3, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus took that to a whole new level. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemy. He said that in Israel when it was occupied by the hated Romans. His words were as shockingly controversial then as they would be in Israel today and as they are anywhere. How poignant, following on from what Florence has already told us, that the women of Palestine chose as their theme for this year's service, I beg you, bear with one another in love. Jesus went on, do good to those who despitefully use you, bless those who persecute you, judge you, slander you, speak evil of you or of someone else in your hearing. Before you retaliate or spread the hurt any further, bless and do not curse. My dear family, says James, in essence, brethren, love one another. Against this there is no law. Let God be the judge. In fact, let God be God. So then, more, more briefly perhaps, moving on to the next section, verses 13 to 17. Now, you might think that this is a completely different section on a different subject. But no, James is actually saying the same thing. Don't play God. Don't put yourselves in the place of God. Let's bring his little scenario up to date a little bit. So next week we could take our business down to London, set up our market stall down there in Covent Garden. We could do a roaring trade down there. And this time next year, Rodney will be millionaires. <laughs> whoa, 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 said James. You don't know what's going to happen this afternoon let alone next week or next year. Now, does this mean that we should never plan ahead or never book anything because we don't know what's going to happen? And let me just tell you young things out there, this becomes more of an issue as you get older <laughs> and health issues creep in and you think, oh golly, are we okay to book a holiday this year? But that's not what James is talking about at all. What he's hitting out at is the arrogance of thinking that we are in control, we hold the future, we know what we're doing and when, and we are the masters of our own destiny. No, you're not, says James. Again, we're in danger of putting ourselves in place of God. Now, can you cast your mind back four years 
Spring 2020, when the shutters came down and everything stopped. We were in the first lockdown in living memory and it was scary. Nobody could plan anything. You couldn't book a holiday, most certainly. My husband Peter and I couldn't even jump in the car and drive to Tesco's and do the shopping. Peter, because of his health issues, suddenly we were classed as vulnerable elderly, or elderly vulnerable, whatever it is. That was a shock. And suddenly, for the first few weeks, before I could get an online shopping slot, which were at a premium at that stage, I had to submit to Ron and Jill doing my shopping for me. Now, for those of you that didn't know them, Ron and Jill were our previous minister and his wife, uh, and they were the volunteers for our road for helping the vulnerable elderly. And I had to let Ron do my shopping for me when I felt perfectly fit and well and capable. And that was hard, I must confess. They were brilliant. They were absolutely wonderful. But I found it hard. The whole experience of lockdown was a massive lesson in humility for all of us. Suddenly, we couldn't just do as we pleased. We had to do as we were told by the government because they were in control. Yeah? Don't judge. <laughs> or was the pandemic in control? No, ultimately, of course, God was in control. And we saw that in so many ways, as I'm sure you know, that even in the darkest days of the pandemic, when so many people were dying and the NHS was at the point of collapse and the virus was sweeping across the world, in faith, we had to believe that God was in control. God holds the future in his hands and not us. And lockdown taught us to submit humbly to the fact that we are not the masters of our own destiny. God is. We're going to sing a song in a few minutes. One of my favorites, and I want it at my funeral. Andrew Martin, I know you've already said you want it at your funeral, but <laughs> I'm sure that it's no problem about having uh, us both having it. Again, thanking Andy for his choice of music this morning. We're actually singing three songs this morning that I want in my funeral. Now, is this prophetic or what? <laughs> Anyway, in a few minutes, we're going to sing, In Christ Alone, My Hope is Found. And the last verse of that song says, From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. That is the attitude that James is advocating here. Yes, by all means, go ahead, make your plans, make your decisions, make your bookings, but do it with God. Listening to his wisdom and his guidance, recognizing that whatever our plans might be, he might have other ideas and very often better ones. Before we move on to the last section, do just note that last verse of this section, the last verse of chapter four. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, that is sin. Are we hearers of the word 
and not doers of it. Remember Bart's sermon a few weeks ago, hearers of the word but not doers of it. We've already heard that this morning. If we pretend we haven't heard it and don't do it, then that is sin. We need to listen to the Spirit's leading in all things, including our future plans. Let God be God. So then, final section, uh, and uh, time is moving on, so I'm going to skip over the obvious explanation of this passage, because I'm sure that we can all work that out for ourselves. James is clearly hitting out at the kind of society whereby the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Where have we heard that before? The poor, the weak, and the marginalized get oppressed and exploited. Christian church should always be ready to stand up against this and recognize that it is those very poor and weak and marginalized that God is most interested in and concerned about, and so should we be. Also, we can see in this passage the obvious parallel with the teaching of Jesus. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not store up treasures for yourselves on earth, where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal. Hold very loosely to the things of this earth, that which we cannot take with us into eternity. Instead, says Jesus, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. By living lives of profound gratitude to God for all that he has done for us and all that he has given to us, and at the same time, living lives of profound generosity with all the varied blessings that he has given us. Giving especially to those who can't give back to us. Scatter your generosity like feathers in the wind that cannot be retrieved. There's a better picture of the feathers. <laughs> and the byproduct is treasures in heaven where nothing and no one can destroy or take away. Now, that's the straightforward message of this section. However, Tom Wright, in his commentary on this passage, points out another whole dimension here which throws a different light on this section and, in fact, on all that we've been looking at this morning, even on other parts of James's letter. We see it when we get to verse 6. And in the Bible version that Tom was using, it translates that verse as, you have condemned the righteous one, capital R, capital O, and killed him. Tom believes that this righteous one is Jesus. And James is really pointing the finger at the Sadducees and the chief priests of the temple in Jerusalem, the ones who condemned Jesus and handed him over to be killed. They were also the ones living in luxury, just as James describes here, but they have gained their wealth by exploiting the poor. The devout Jews and pilgrims coming to the temple with their sacrifices but then being forced to buy the temple animals at exorbitant prices. Remember how angry Jesus was when he saw what was happening at the temple? He made a whip 
and he overturned the tables of the money changers and he threw them out of the temple, saying to them, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. But underneath his anger was the love that wept over Jerusalem because he would have gathered them together like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but they would not. And these powerful religious elite, hearers of the word, but not doers of it, they refused to see Jesus as the son of God, the promised Messiah, and just saw him as a troublemaker threatening to cause trouble with the Roman occupiers and threatening their whole comfortable way of life. He had to be eliminated. In pointing to these religious leaders, James is simply echoing Jesus' anger in the temple, telling the Sadducees and the chief priests that putting their trust in wealth is futile. Verse one, weep and howl for the miseries coming upon you. Verse five, in Tom Wright's words, your riches have fattened you up like turkeys for Christmas. Wow. Tom says that this passage is the sharpest warning against careless luxury anywhere in the Bible. Chilling that it wasn't many years after James wrote this letter that in AD 70, Jerusalem was besieged by the Romans, the temple was destroyed along with the whole sacrificial system and priests and people were massacred. Just as James is prophesying here and just as Jesus prophetically demonstrated when he threw the money changers out of the temple. The temple has never been rebuilt. Praise God that we no longer need that sacrificial system because Jesus became our sacrificial lamb once and for all and very quickly proved that he could not be eliminated. But just think for a moment. They judged Jesus unfairly. They slandered him. They spoke evil of him behind his back. They falsely accused him. They broke all their own rules in their hurry to get him condemned, all to secure their own future, their own destiny, which they held in their hands as they thought. So they condemned to death the righteous, holy son of God, thinking that they could put themselves in the place of God. See how all these three sections this morning hold together? Is James saying to us in the whole of this passage, look at what these religious leaders did and continue to do. Of course, they were still there when he was writing this letter. Look at what it led to, said James, and where sin eventually always leads the sin of judgmental, slanderous attitudes, usurping the role of God, thinking we are the masters of our own destiny, putting ourselves first 
being absorbed with our own comfort and wealth and security whilst being oblivious to the needs of others. And these religious leaders were so blinded by their sin that they crucified Jesus. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Summing up this whole passage that we've looked at this morning, James is saying, in effect, my dearly beloved brothers and sisters, do not do as they did. Love one another in word, in deed, and in truth. And let God be sovereign Lord out of, out of every part of your lives. Challenging? Of course it is. And that's why we need Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, whose love and humility drove him to the cross, to the grave, and to the skies. And he is the only one who now enables us, by his spirit, to live the life to which he himself has called us. Hence we sing, yet not I, but Christ in me. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in our weakness, be our strength. In our sin, cover us with your forgiveness. In our arrogance and pride, grant us to live in your humility. In our selfishness, teach us to love as you have loved us. Help us to put our trust only in you and in your grace and by your spirit, enable us to be the people and the fellowship that you intended us to be. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. In your precious name we pray. Amen.